Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. We're going to be covering the rest of the 1973 ALCS between the Orioles and the Athletics. These final three games are going to be in Oakland. So the A's essentially have home field advantage. They just need to win two out of three, sort of like a traditional home series against this really tough Baltimore Orioles team. And in many ways, the A's have the momentum going into this. You know, if we recall, uh, the Orioles just blew the A's out in game one. Jim Palmer pitched a masterpiece. Vita Blue didn't make it out of the first inning. And, you know, they basically put up four runs. And that was that, you know, the, the A's didn't really have a chance, but they immediately came back out swinging game two. Campanaris leads off with a home run. Sal Bando hits two off of Dave McNally and throw in a Joe Rudy Homer and another Campanaris RBI. And it's a win and a very solid performance by Catfish Hunter able to get out of some major jams. The A's are able to sort of, you know, in some ways they hold on in game two. They get a six to three win. Uh, but what they did a really good job of was limiting damage and then adding on, re- like really punishing the Orioles for not taking advantage of opportunities, you know, to really extend that lead. It's a game where, you know, maybe if Earl Weaver makes some better decisions, right? Like, you know, it, it's a tough thing when you're looking at the managers so far between Earl, Earl Weaver and Dick Williams. I wanted to say Earl Williams. Of course, Earl Williams has played a huge role, and he's going to continue to play a major role in this series. Um, I don't want to conflate their <laughs> conflate their names. Um, but so far in this series, I think both managers have 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 had me. You know, Williams hasn't really been tested so far. He had a couple of opportunities with Hunter. You know running into some jams in, say, the sixth inning where might have gone to fingers there, but he waited until the eighth. I mean, certainly at that point, that was the time to bring Raleigh fingers in the game. On Earl Weaver's side, he really left McNally in the game way too long. And we're going to see the the struggle that McNally had against the Orioles I'm sorry, against the A's and so far in the season where he kind of got roughed up in the regular season too. That's going to play a major factor as we get later in this series when it comes to decisions of who's starting. Typically, Earl Weaver was the guy who I'm going to trust my guy. Like Dave McNally is my guy. But we're going to see that that struggle that McNally had actually play an impact in an elimination game in this series. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I was trying to find, looking things up, whether or not McNally was dealing with some arm trouble or if there was any reason that Weaver gave as to when we see the decisions he makes for game five. Um, But I wasn't able to find anything concrete. Um, And I certainly don't, necessarily blame Weaver for trying something different. Um, 
where we're at right now, though, heading into game three is the series is tied 1-1. And we've got a matchup of lefties. Mike Cuellar is going for the Orioles. We can remember his... He's a guy who's had some really, really great postseason performances, some some tremendous outings. You know, at, at this stage, he's not at the height of the, you know, the Cy Young caliber pitcher. He was back in 1969, but he's still one of the top lefties in the game. And he's going up against the A's number three starter, who's Ken Holtzman, who would be a number one on plenty of other teams, but... On this ace teams, you know, behind Vita Blue and Cat and Catfish Hunter, Ken Holtzman's kind of the three, and you know, it's a three who can win you twenty games a year. Um, and and th- I mean, that's when I look at the similarities between the A's and the Orioles. Like that's where it is, where you know you have those three horses at the top, and that's what makes this series so interesting to me. Is these are really I I I would give the A's the advantage with the lineup and with the star power, and especially since Frank Robinson's gone, Boog Powell's not the not the player he once was, Brooks Robinson's not the player he once was. The Orioles had a lot of good pieces, but they didn't they didn't have that star power that the A's had. But when it came to pitching with Palmer, McNally, and Cuellar, I mean, that matches up, and and as we talked about when we covered the Mets-Reds series, pitching can carry you through a postseason. And the the outing we're going to see here from Mike Quayer and Ken Holtzman, I mean, it is a a duel for the ages. Uh, As I mentioned last episode, unfortunately, I don't have the audio for this game, which is, to me, really disappointing because there are some moments here that are just absolutely brilliant. I would love to cover them, and I would also love to hear, you know, I'm only able to sort of look at the box score, read some newspapers about what happened, so I can kind of paint a picture for you of of what happened in this game, but we're going to lack that immersion, and I apologize for that. Um, I, I wish I, you know, my technical skills or my digging skills were, were just a little bit better, um, but... I, I'm going to try as best as I can to sort of retell the story of this great game, this great matchup between two lefties who, you know, obviously Quayer is a guy who had a Cy Young. Ken Holtzman is kind of a, in many ways, a forgotten star, right? A forgotten kind of, not exactly a throwaway by any mean, by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah, he's he's the third. He's probably the fourth pitcher that comes to mind. Maybe even the fifth pitcher that comes to mind when you're thinking about these A's, because you're going to go to Catfish, you're going to go to Raleigh Fingers, you're going to go to Vita Blue. You might even go to Blue Moon Odom before you'd remember. Oh yeah, Ken Holtzman. What a year for Ken Holtzman. And as I talked about this year, I believe I mentioned he started. I believe he started forty games. Let me see if I have that right. Yes, he started 40 games and threw nearly 300 innings, going 21 and 13 with a 2.970 ERA. Yeah, that'll get it done. That will get it done. I mean, you know, you have a team with three 20 game winners. 
man, what uh, what a guy, what a horse. I mean, like if we look at the stretch that Ken Holtzman went on, right? You know, he was a very solid pitcher with the Cubs. But the Cup, you know, being a, a multi-time 17-game winner, but immediately gets traded, you know, before the 72 season. When we think about, like, influential trades that happen, that's for Ken Holtzman, man. You know, immediately comes in 72, goes 19 and 11 with a 251. We mentioned 21 and 13 and 73, 19 and 17, then 18 and 14. He actually eventually gets traded to the Orioles uh, in 76, along with uh, Reggie Jackson, interestingly enough. Um, but man, Ken Holtzman, he was a horse, man. He was a horse. And uh, um, and of course, the the player he was traded for was Rick Monday. Um, Rick Monday was originally with the A's, uh, gets traded uh, to the Cubs, where I believe he's a little more famous with the Cubs and the Dodgers uh, for most of his career. But you know, Rick Monday, of well, I believe, was the first ever draft pick. Um, and so that I mean, I miss trades like that, where. And it happened more back then because of contract situations, because there wasn't free agency, because there wasn't, you know, this at at the time, there wasn't a threat of, oh, this person leaving, going somewhere else. They didn't have a choice. Back then, you would have more interesting trades of player for player trades. Um, And, you know, you have trades that sort of work out in many ways for both teams. Um, and certainly for the A's, Ken Holtzman was a boon. Um, but this game, man, <laughs> it's a it's a really tight battle. Uh, and I, again, I really wish I had the audio for it. But let me sort of break down what happens in this game. So they trade zeros in the first innings. Um, you know, both Holtzman and, and Quay are certainly not known as strikeout pitchers. Uh, you know, Quay had that that famous screwball. Um, but I mean, back then guys weren't really strikeout pitchers, but, but in this game, both of them, uh, both of them are able to pick up a, uh, a fair amount of strikeouts, but after trading zeros in the first in the top of the second, Earl Williams takes Ken Holtzman deep to give the O's the early lead. You know, we, we talk all the time about momentum and, and, you know, you're coming on the road. You want, you want to sort of make a statement and Earl Williams does in a way, but it doesn't continue anything. And, and as it turns out, that's all the Orioles are going to get in this game. But for much of the game with the way that Cuellar is pitching and the way that the Orioles play defense, it looks like that's going to be enough. I mean, being the first seven innings, no runs, no runs and and Holtzman's you know other you know other than that mistake he makes to Earl Williams, he's brilliant, almost perfect in this game, right? I believe so. It, like in in the first inning, he gave up a base hit, and then a guy reached on an error, gave up that home run in the second, and then I believe he only gives up one other hit, and on and and a walk like two more base runners for the rest of the game. He doesn't give up another hit until the ninth inning. Think about that. What a performance by Ken Holtzman. But we go to the bottom of the eighth, right? Cuellar 
just six outs away from putting his team one win away from going back to another World Series. Capping off, I mean, because if we think about this time period here, right? The Orioles went to three straight World Series, 69, 70, and 71. Had to step back in 72, but here they were right back on the precipice. And basically, these are the, you kind of know that these are the two teams that are going to be vying for dominance of the American League in the 70s. Right, we, we mentioned that they are very similar teams. We mentioned the great pitching, the great managers. And, you know, it's kind of almost vying for supremacy because, you know, they don't want to let the A's go to back-to-back World Series, win back-to-back World Series. Because the Orioles, they went to three straight World Series, but they only won one. They only won in 1970. You know, they had a heartbreaking loss in 71 to the Pirates, but they were looking to, you know, put themselves back on the map. And so, bottom of the eighth, Dick Williams makes some decisions that are pretty interesting. He pinch hits Jesus Alou for Ray Fossey. You know, then it's something that you're able to do. The flexibility that Dick Williams had, Earl Weaver had this too with, with, you know, with Etcheberry and Earl Williams, right? Earl Williams could slide to catcher, move to first. Same situation for the A's. Gene Tennis typically was playing first base, but you could take Fossey out and know you could move tennis behind the plate. Or if you need to move, uh, you could move other things around. Having that flexibility of a catcher who you depend on to be a great hitter who also has that positional flexibility. Huge. Jesus Alou hits a little blooper to left field, reaches base, kind of falls in Bermuda Triangle in no man's land. Again, I would love to hear the radio call on this and know how just, just how close were the outfielders on it. Where was this ball? And then Alou gets pinch run for by Alan Lewis. Then gets bunted over to second base, putting him in scoring position. Burke Campanaris then, top of the order's up, he actually strikes out Cuellar. Now he's just one out, he's four outs away and just one out away from getting it to the bottom of the ninth with no runs scored, giving his team a chance to win. But Joe Rudy is standing in the way, lines the ball to the left center field gap. Lewis comes around to score. We're tied. 1-1 brand new ball game and with the way Holtzman's pitching the Orioles can't get anything going they're just gonna it was a sort of situation this is a game you wouldn't see now where a starter's gonna stay in until the 11th inning and on both sides and you know I miss that in many ways I think in today's game guys throw too hard they throw way too max effort and that, you know, that leads to better production, better sort of optimized per plate appearance. But I think that limits the ability to really lengthen. You know, you don't have those 11 inning performances anymore. Um, but Holtzman's able to shut down the Orioles in the ninth, the 10th, and the top of the 11th. And, and Cuellar matches him to that point. I mean, what a game. 1-1 into the 11th. But the guy 
who was sort of the spark plug in game two, sort of the, the, the guy who gets things going for the A's, Burt Campanaris, has not had a great game so far. He's made some made defensive plays, you know, but he's looking back, he's thinking back to that bottom of the eighth. Cuellar struck him out with runners in scoring position, with, with a runner in scoring position. Thankfully, Joe Rudy was able to pick him up, right? And, and we talked about that. How the A's that you know that that top of the lineup is able to able to pick each other up, able to to build off of one another so well. They had such good chemistry. But to lead off the bottom of the the eleventh, Bert Campanaris says, "Enough of this. Game over. Home run." Off of, again, so we're thinking about Burt Campanaris, a guy who, uh, the apart from one year where he hit 22 home runs, not a power hitter by any stretch of the imagination. And here he is with two home runs, back-to-back games, a leadoff home run in game two, and a walk-off home run in game three. What a couple of day span for Burt Campanaris. Winning player. It, what I love about the A's is that they have so many winning players. We're going to talk about some more winning players you know, as we get further along in this series. But now the A's, just one win away from going back to the World Series. And the Orioles, a loss away from their season being over, you know, sometimes leads to desperation in, in final games. So what's going to happen there in game four? Well, we will cover game four. Again, won't have audio for that one, but we'll cover game four. And spoiler alert, there's going to be a game five after a word from our sponsor. People are talking. They're talking about a new age of car buying. Something more economical. Something smaller, but not too small. Something that has all of the luxury of luxury cars, but at a more affordable price. Something that will save you on gas, too. Something like the range of options you get with the all-new Datsuns. Haven't heard of them? Well, you will. For many years to come, the Datsun is all you really need in a car. Oh, hold on. I thought it was Datsun. Well, it's... Spelled Datsun. Yeah, I, I know, I know, but I think the dat is pronounced dot. Is pronounced dot. Datsun. Listen, don't complicate matters. I mean, maybe the company should just use its actual name. And what's that? Nissan. Are you nuts? Just, just a thought, you know. Come on over to your Datsun showroom and see what everybody is talking about in the new line of 1974 Datsuns. Or Dotsons. Although it didn't go the Orioles' way, a truly tremendous performance by Mike Cuellar almost feels like a waste of 10 great innings. It's that thing when you're looking for, could we have just gotten a little more offense? And, well, against Ken Holtzman, there was nothing. Again, what a performance by both of these guys. You know, so 21 combined innings between the two pitchers. Just three runs given up. Just seven total hits. 
and 11 total base runners. Cuellar struck out 11. Holtzman struck out 7. Tremendous pitching performance. I mean, and my guess was this was probably a pretty brisk game played. Uh, I, I doubt it took too much time. And by the way, 11 innings. So, right, 11 innings, 2 hours and 23 minutes. That's my kind of ball game, <laughs> if you ask me. Oh, man, hopefully with the implementation of the pitch clock and some you know ways to speed up the game, encouraging more balls in play, maybe we can get some more of those ball games this year in, in 2023. Bring back some something of the game from about 50 years ago. If there's one thing I love, it, it's just pace, pace with pitching. It's so important. I love it. Anyway, let's go to game four. So the Orioles, now facing elimination, they turn back to Jim Palmer, of course. He was brilliant in game one. And and so far, I mean, McNally struggled in game two, but he was able to give them length, right? You know, and and in many ways, he still kept them in the ballgame. You know, there, there was basically a five-inning stretch where McNally was masterful. And Cuellar, for most of the game, right, has a little blip and makes a mistake to Campanaris. But other than that, it's great. It's just apart from essentially the first inning of game one, Orioles offense has been in a rut. And a lot of that credit goes to the A's pitching. Absolutely. You know, Catfish was great in game two. We're going to talk a little bit more about Catfish. Uh, when we get to game five. But in this game, you're thinking, all right, we've got our guy. We've got Jim Palmer going. This is the way that we are going to get ourselves back in. And, you know, this provides an opportunity with the A's having this, you know, having the lead, being on the precipice, you know, and essentially having a game to give. That's the main thing here. They could turn to Vita Blue interesting to think about of, hey, you had a really rough outing in game one, but that was just, you couldn't get out of the first inning. And, you know, you don't want that on your pitcher's mind, especially if you're going to be heading into the World Series. You want to say, hey, Vida, go back out there, give us a great outing today. And he's going to pitch a lot better. What's interesting in this game is that Jim Palmer's the one who gets knocked out early. He doesn't get through two innings, which is crazy to me. I mean, and 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 part of it is, hey, the Orioles are in desperation and they cannot afford to get too far behind in this game. So that brings us to the bottom of the second inning, right? So they trade zeros in the first inning and Vita Blue you know, sets down the side in order in the top of the second. So a much better, already a much better day for Vita Blue. He's gotten through two, he's gotten more outs. Actually, he's gotten more than twice as many outs as he did in fewer batters faced. So that's, you know, that's pretty important there for Vita Blue. But trouble for Jim Palmer in the bottom of the second. I mean, we saw in game one, he got himself into jams, but then was he basically able to strike everyone out? Luck would not be the same for Jim today. Gene Tennis gets a du- gets a double to left field. Vic Davalio, guy who really hasn't 
played a factor so much in this series, but he's he's playing today. Gets a single to left, advances to second because they try to throw tennis out at third. And Darren Johnson strikes out, but that brings up Ray Fossey, who doubles to left, bringing in two runs. And then Dick Green hits another double, bringing in Ray Fossey. So it's 3-0, and then after Palmer walks Burt Campanaris, Weaver's not letting him face Joe Rudy, not facing elimination, brings in Bullet Bob Reynolds, who comes in and is masterful, by the way. He's, I mean, just essentially saves the Orioles' season, if we're being honest. Does end up giving a run, uh, giving up a run at one point, but really, really saves the Orioles' season going four and two-thirds innings, right? So Palmer only retires four batters, right? Only retires four batters in this game. You're ace. And you're facing elimination, so you're going, you're going full bullpen game here. And But like I said, Bob Reynolds does a tremendous, tremendous job. The only thing he gives up is a sack fly to Ray Fossey in the bottom of the six to make it a 4 nothing game, all right? So then on the other side, if you're thinking about that, Vita Blue, six shutout innings, hardly any trouble. I mean, he's putting together what looks like this classic A's masterclass pitching performance, you know, where, you know, the Orioles just aren't able to get it going. However, a little trouble there, just a little trouble when we get to the top of the seventh. You know, the A's are nine outs away, just nine outs away, up four runs and ready to go back to the World Series. And I don't know what spark was lit under the Orioles or, or what exactly happened, or perhaps it's just baseball. We talk about all the time how quickly things can go. A 4 nothing lead, well, you make a couple of mistakes, and it's gone. You know, after a Tommy Davis flyout, Earl Williams draws a walk. Don Baylor gets a single. And Brooks Robinson, old Brooks Robinson's still around. Not the player he once was, but... His his sense for the big moment is never lost. Gets a base hit. Drives in Earl Williams. So it's first and second. Andy Etcheberry at the play. Andy Etcheberry, you know, a good platoon catcher. But not someone who you're really that concerned about. But at this point, it's a 4-1 game. One mistake. And the game's over. Uh, not, not the game's over, but the lead is gone. Brand new ball game. And it makes me wonder... Because I imagine with the runners on, Earl Weaver, Earl Weaver's thinking, all right, here we go. Dick Williams is thinking, well, I've got Raleigh Fingers warming up. But I don't know if I want to bring him in just yet. You know, Vida's been great. He's gotten Etchebarren out in this game. We are fine. No issues here. But... He makes a mistake to Andy Etcheberry, who crushes one, just crushes one, and it's a tie ball game. You know, think about this. Just a couple batters ago, basically, you know, five batters ago, you had a 4 nothing lead. You were thinking, here we are, heading back to the World Series, and now, oh, it's a tie game. And so now I'm bringing Raleigh Fingers into a tie game. My my closer, my my shutdown guy, 
a batter too late. <laughs> you know, it, it'd be one of those things to think about if this series went a different way, if the if the Orioles somehow then took this momentum and, and, and won game five, would that be thought of as, oh, what a mistake there by Dick Williams, Hall of Fame manager? No, well, so sometimes these things... Again, we'll, we'll talk about pitching uh, pitching decisions and all of that, but it, it's just a very interesting thing and why I think to me it's such a shame that I don't have the radio call on this because I would love to hear and I'd love to hear the crowd because I guarantee this was this was a moment where, you know, Oakland Coliseum is not necessarily a raucous, big energy crowd. It's a very big place, of course, you know, being a football uh, stadium. But I bet you could hear a pin drop after Echeb- while Echebaran was rounding the bases. Probably dead silent and thinking, what in the world just happened? And, you know, Eddie Watt then comes in, Grant Jackson, the, you know, the Orioles are able to, you know, able to get out of a jam in the bottom of the seventh. And then to lead off the top of the eighth, the guy who was in many in in many respects the Orioles' best player in 1973. The reason they traded away Davey Johnson, right? And if we think about Davey Johnson, who just this past year hit 43 home runs, and people were probably wondering what the heck was this trade going on? I mean, the surface numbers are like, well, Bobby Gritch, he only hit 250 and 17 home runs. Yeah, but you're ignoring the walks. You're ignoring the tremendous defense he played. Bobby Gritch, sort of that un, unsung Hall of Fame caliber player that you didn't have that didn't have Hall of Fame vibes, as we would say now, um, but was a tremendous, tremendous ball player. Here he is, top of the eighth against Raleigh Fingers, takes him deep. Give the Orioles the lead. Their first lead since before in, in game three. But the first time that they can really feel in control, right? Like they were on the brink of elimination, and here they are about to force a winner-take-all game seven. And um, and for the Orioles, Grant Jackson ends up, does a tremendous job basically just getting weak contact, gets pop-ups all over the place in weak ground outs. And then, I mean, think about this. So one run, right? <laughs> a one run lead, bottom of the ninth, you're facing Campanaris, Joe Rudy, and Sal Bando. One, two, three for Grant Jackson to say, all right, take us on boys. Let's go get game five, winner take all. Who, who the heck knows what can happen? I mean, that, I'm frustrated partially. I, I'm 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 super excited talking about this, but I also am slightly frustrated that I didn't get the audio for it because I'd love I'd love to hear it and love to bring you you all sort of back to those moments. But we're just gonna have to imagine it for now. But the Orioles, what a what a fight, what a comeback, and, and that's what I love about this 1973 postseason is we saw it in the Reds Mets series where the Reds facing basically facing elimination and they fight back you know to for to force a decisive game five 
we're gonna we're we're gonna see that time and again of you know taking it to the brink, taking it to the max. It's what you love as a fan, right? You want as much baseball as possible, and especially if they're going to give us great games like this. So, after a short break, we are going to be talking about Game 5. It's going to be Catfish Hunter returning. Jimmy Hunter, as he was known to his friends and his teammates. Um, cat, the Catfish actually came as a nickname from Charlie Finley. Um, of sort of, oh, we need to create some mythos and some legend around you. Actually, enough, I'm surprised he wasn't called like Shotgun or or Pellet Hunter because uh, his brother actually shot him in the, accidentally shot him in the foot with with pellets and, you know, had to deal with, you know, having to surgically remove pellets like throughout, like the, you know, throughout multiple times in his career uh, for, for Hunter. You know, Hunter was a country boy who was a control artist on the mound, a big game pitcher. And, and we actually think back to in 1972, sorry, 1971, first time the A's had made the playoffs in 40 years, right? They went 40 years without making the playoffs their whole time in Kansas city. They didn't make the playoffs from their move from, and, and they had gone years in Philly without making the playoffs. But in game two of that series, Catfish Hunter sort of had a Dave McNally game where he ended up he ended up getting rocked by Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, and Joe Rudy, who it, who took who took him deep four times. But Catfish, we saw him in Game Two, really respond well and, and do well in jams, and they knew okay elimination game. Catfish did great in the '72 World Series. He was looking to do great here in 73 but the interesting decision is that earl weaver wasn't gonna go with his workhorse lefty nope wasn't gonna do it mcnally i I don't know i don't know exactly why i don't know the fundamental reason but he was not going to turn to dave mcnally in this game five he was going to go with young righty who would become famous much, much later at the tail end of his career for a trade. You know, this is a guy who has been traded in his career multiple times for different Hall of Famers. He was traded for Frank Robinson. He was traded for John Smoltz. And he played on a bunch of different teams. I'm, of course, talking about Doyle Alexander. But this is a young Doyle Alexander, right? This is a young 22-year-old who really his first full season as a starter. And here he is. Hey, young young guy, go take the game. Go take the mound in an elimination game. That's a lot of pressure on a young guy. You know, and then going up against Catfish, who at this point is a veteran, already a World Series winner, already a multi-time 20-game winner. A lot of pressure to put on a young guy. We'll have more on that uh, after a short break. Doyle Alexander had a very interesting career. As I mentioned, traded for Hall of Famers at different points of his career at the beginning and the end, right? And at one of those cases, he was sort of the prize, 
right, of traded for a young prospect, John Smoltz, where back in ninth, after the 1971 season, heading into 1972, Frank Robinson was the prize and Doyle Alexander was the young up-and-coming pitcher. So I, I just always think that's very interesting. Also, at another point, Alexander later traded with Elrod Hendricks and Ken Holtzman and, and, and other players to the Yankees for future World Series MVP Rick Dempsey. Future, I forget if McGregor won a Cy Young, but future like World Series winning pitcher Scott McGregor and a couple of other players too. He was also traded for former, former Rookie of the Year John Montefusco. A weird career, a guy who, who pitched for 19 years, came up at a young age, and then had a couple of years of getting Cy Young votes and some MVP votes, but didn't make an all-star team until his 18th year in the big leagues. Sort of more as a remembrance of, because people forget with the Doyle Alexander trade, it's like, oh, what a, what a, what a, what an awful trade. The, you know, the Tigers didn't make the World Series and they gave away a Hall of Famer. Yeah, well, Dillo Alexander went 9-0 with like a 1 ERA and then made the All-Star team the next year. I think maybe part of it was because of that sort of that legendary ha- basically half of a season, well, really more of almost like a third of a season when you're looking at when the trade deadline is. So uh, that's just always interesting. But here he is at 22 years old starting an elimination game and going up against Catfish Hunter. Um, who I'll have plenty to say about Catfish Hunter in this game. But, the you know, the early in this game, it's, it's uh, you know, Catfish ends up walking Al Brumbury to start. Brumbury gets himself in scoring position. Uh, but a fly out, a fly out, and a pop out. And the Orioles are done in the first. And But Doyle Alexander responds uh, with a scoreless first. And and so they they trade zeros through the first two innings. And then after Catfish sets down the side in order in the top of the third, interesting thing happens here. So Ray Fossey reaches base. He hits a ball to third where it's ruled as an error because Brooks falls down. I don't know if he misstepped or tripped on something, but the human vacuum cleaner doesn't make what should be basically a routine play. And that's going to be huge. Because Dick Green bunts him over, Fossey moves to second. Burke Campanaris actually pops out, but, you know, so in many respects, Doyle Alexander should be out of the inning here, right? Out of the inning. He should be through the, basically through the order, through the first time, you know, not get nine outs without giving a run up. But his defense failed him in a way. And so what's going to happen here? Joe Rudy's at the plate. Joe Rudy obviously has had a home run, has ha- has been able to drive in some runs in this series. Just a clutch player, Joe Rudy, who, you know, 73 was, he, he was in the midst of a, a really good stretch of his career. 73 was definitely not his best season. Um, he had been a runner-up for, for MVP in 72, and I think was runner-up in 74 as well. Um, Reggie ended up winning the MVP in 73. Uh, we actually haven't heard much about Reggie in this series, and that's actually for good reason. He did not have a good ALCS, our typically great postseason performer. Reggie Jackson kind of missing, interestingly enough. But Joe Rudy, well, take a listen here with a chance in an elimination game. An elimination game 
that really any game you want to score first. It doesn't guarantee anything. But you just, you just don't want to get down, right? You don't want to get down. You, you want to take advantage of an opportunity, and that is what Joe Rudy's going to do here. Alexander's first offering to the right-hand swing and Rudy. Ground ball, base hit to left field. Bumpery is charging around third, comes Flossie to pick up. Throw to the plate is going to be cut off to second base. Out at second base. The run will score. Fossey scores the first run. Bumbry's throw hit the cutoff man, Brooks Robinson. And Brooks Robinson wheeled it to second base. And that cut down Rudy for the final out. So you credit Rudy with a single to left field, a run batted in. And he has cut down left fielder, third baseman, second baseman for the final out of the inning. Oakland uh, picks up a run on a base hit, plus an Oriole error, and nobody left on. At the end of three complete, it is Oakland one, Baltimore nothing. Back on the broadcast, finally have it here in Game 5. I believe we've got Chuck Thompson and Bill O'Donnell uh, calling things for on the Orioles' side of the broadcast here in Game 5. Now, of course, it's an interesting play where Rudy gets thrown out, and especially with the middle of the order, of course, Sal Bando coming behind you, you think, well, maybe not the best uh, The best thing there. Uh, looked like Fossey was going to score pretty easily, um, good job by Al, by Al Brum, Bumbry uh, hitting the cutoff man. It's one of those things where sometimes you you force the other team to make a play, right? Like once you you make sure that the run scores, and, and ultimately, you know, early in a game, you don't you don't want to give the other team momentum by throwing a guy out at home plate. I can understand that. Still, I just don't like making outs on the bases if I can avo- avoid them at all. Um, just kind of personal preference. We've seen many times when we've covered, uh, when we've covered series in this show, outs on the bases can come back to haunt you. Thankfully for the A's, not really going to be the case in this game, but Catfish takes that able to put up a zero in the top of the fourth. We actually kind of the top of the bottom of the fourth here, um, it's probably the, it's going to be really the only highlight for the Orioles. And uh, in a little way, we saw Al Bumbry make a great defensive play, right? In left field, makes a great on-the-money throw right to the cutoff man for Brooks Robinson to go flip it to second base and get an out and prevent, you know, with the middle of the order coming up for the A's, right? Now they're going to have to do it with a new, basically with a new set, no runners on. And have to not face Sal Bando, who, you know, has hit two home runs in this series, not going to have to face him with runners on. So a really good defensive play by, by Al Bumbry. Remember, he took a home run away from Sal Bando, and he's going to make another great defensive play here. He's he's a guy who, you know, at, at, the, at the budding stages of his career was – was really a special player. Um, small guy. I don't know. I mean, Earl Weaver being kind of a diminutive guy, being, being a, be kind of a, a short guy, he loved his short outfielders. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he would have loved to have had Joe Morgan on his team. He probably would have put together a team of all short guys who could go out there and do great things. 
Um, but you know, he liked having guys like Boog Powell and Brooks Robinson who were pretty, and, and of course, Frank who were big solid. But if we remember back to Don Buford, Don Buford was a, was a, was a very short left fielder. So I don't know, perhaps that's just, you know, that's his archetype of, uh, of, a of a, of a left-handed hitting left fielder that he wanted out there. But here we are, Al Bumbry sort of making the only highlight for the Orioles in this game five. And the Oriole right-handed fires. Here's a drive well hit. Deep down the left field side. Bumbry back at the wall at the fence. Bumbry leaps. He's got it in foul ground. Bumbry went up against the barrier in the deep left field corner and made a spectacular leaping catch. Now, this ball would not have carried over the wall. In truth, it was a foul ball. And uh, Bumbry going racing into the corner, crossed the foul line, leaping into the air. And the... Uh, the five foot eight Al Bumbry once again has sent Bando back to the dugout, kind of talking to himself. An outstanding defensive play from Baltimore left fielder Al Bumbry. Unfortunately for the Orioles, that's kind of the highlight of this game. And that great defensive play, it it makes you think, well, what might have been for the A's, you know, if if Sal Bando got another chance to see another pitch from Doyle Alexander. Because the rest of the lineup here, you know, he's actually able to get Reggie Jackson to ground out. But then the wheels sort of come off. Gene Tennis hits a line drive up the middle, bringing up Vic Davolio, who, you know, is a guy who only appeared in 38 games this season, was a a 33-year-old veteran at this point. Originally played with Cleveland back in the 60s. In fact, was an all-star in 1965, a gold glover in 64, but had been bouncing around, you know, was on the 71 Pirates, appeared in games there on the Cardinals, and was traded for in the 1973 season, where um, he was traded. Um, he was actually purchased by... I take that back. He was purchased. Um, he was actually also traded for earlier. He was traded with Nelson Bryles, who was kind of a World Series hero for both the Cardinals and the Pirates, uh, for Matty Alou. And Vic Davileo was a, sort of a utility guy, played all, all the outfield positions, was a left-handed hitter, kind of a, you know, again, a 5'7", small guy. And from Venezuela, really didn't do much throughout his career, if we're being honest, right? But he had a way of coming up with clutch moments in, in some big games. A guy that you wouldn't think, you know, sort of, it's basically that the, you know, the last guy you expect to come through with a big moment. But here he is. In the lineup, there was a reason Dick Williams was putting him in the lineup. Of course, if Bill North was healthy, Davileo was probably not playing. And But we had saw so far in this series some um, kind of mistakes from Angel Manuel. Jesus Alou was a good hitter, but maybe not coming through as much as you'd like or or as you know responsible for, for Manning center field. But Vic Davileo coming through with one of the biggest hits of his life. A little bit of a breather, just did some hard thinking, relax, as best he could, and now the 2 nothing to Davileo. Fly ball, well hit right field, Coggins back on the warning track, backing leap, over his head and off the wall, here is a 
Tennis into third base. Tennis is coming home. He will score. The runner going to third, and he is in. What a moment there for Vic Davileo, veteran MLB player, getting an opportunity in a big game and coming through. How about that? And that actually brings up next. So runner on third base, pressure still on Doyle Alexander, brings in Jesus Alou. Probably the lesser or the least of the three Alou brothers and probably of the Alou family in the who have history in the major league. Of course, Felipe was a was a tremendous player. His brother Maddie was great, and uh, Moises, of course, had a tremendous, tremendous career. And but still, Jesus Alou picked up over a thousand hits in his career, and here he is, you know, on a championship caliber team. Um, there was just something about those Alus and connections to great winning teams and great and greatness, you know, you know, it's just something that's, uh, that's pretty cool. But here he is, you know, when a young pitcher like Doyle Alexander, he was so close, right? So close in the inning before to getting out of the jam to getting through without giving up a run. And here he was, got the first two outs, got, got Sal Bando and Reggie Jackson out. But then it's the bottom of the order. It's guys like Vic Davileo and Hazel Salou that are going to punish him. And unfortunately, you know, Hazel Salou is going to rise to the moment and end Doyle Alexander's day. And here now is Hesu Alou. In the second inning, Alexander got him on a tapper to the mound. Doyle ready to go. And the pitch to Alou. Line drive, base hit, left field. And here comes Davileo home with run number three. Well, Doyle Alexander got Bando to start the inning on a circus catch by his left fielder, Bumbridge. Jackson on the routine ground ball to second base and grip. And then the roof cave in. Tennis, a line single that almost took his head off into center field. Davileo with a blazing line drive shot against the wall in right field to score tennis. Alou with a first pitch line drive single into left field to score Davileo. And manager Weaver has come to the mound, and that is going to be it for, Do- for Doyle Alexander, where he got the first two men in the inning, and then the Oakland A's 
who, believe me, are a good, tough-hitting ball club, just came after Alexander and Hammerty with three scorching line drive bases. So Alexander is out. And Doyle leads the ball game, and from the bullpen will come yesterday's starter, Jim Palmer. Sort of feeling like full desperation there for Earl Weaver. Of course, with the decision to start the young Doyle Alexander making his postseason debut in a winner-take-all game, we've seen that. We've actually seen that before. Um, we think in the future, 1980, Marty Bystrom starting an elimination game for the Phillies in 1980 when we covered that. And, and we, we've seen it before, you know, sometimes it's out of circumstance, but if you're going to be able to bring Palmer back right out of the bullpen and, and he ends up pitching brilliantly going four plus innings, kind of keeping in many ways, keeping the Orioles in this ball game, giving them a chance that if they can just get something to go in against catfish hunter, they're probably going to find a way to win. You know, they might be, a, they, Palmer could be the hero. But it does make me question if you're going to have such a short string on Alexander, which he did, right? Postseason debut only goes three and two-thirds innings. And you go back to your guy on, on no day's rest. You really weren't willing to go to McNally? It's it's just an interesting decision in my head, you know, that I don't necessarily agree with it or disagree with it. You know, if it works out, great, and it didn't work out here for Earl Weaver and, and probably a decision that they're going to be stewing on uh, in the future. Just an, just an, just an interesting thing uh, in my head. To, to, to consider is what does that do to a player, right? Where a guy you've trusted on, relied on, Dave McNally, who's been in many ways your number two starter, right? Kind of throughout all these years, there's some years that Palmer's been the number one. Um, there have been years McNally's been the number one. But there's years that Cuellar's been the number one. But McNally's been solid for you. And in an elimination game, you decide to go, you know what? We're going to go with Doyle. And it didn't work out. Plain and simple. What did work out for the A's was relying on Catfish Hunter. Uh, Again, to his teammates, Jim Hunter, Jimmy Hunter, country boy, big game pitcher, you know, it's interesting, guys who get the reputation as a big game pitcher, they, it doesn't always start that way. Of course, as I mentioned, Catfish Hunter's first big game, he got crushed by the Orioles, crushed by this team. And here he is, just two years later, against the same team, putting up back-to-back tremendous masterclass performances. The first game, right, game two, was a battle. That was a battle. That was a tough grinded out. This is what we call a masterclass and just dominance. 
in cruise control. That's what Hunter was in. Hardly any threats. I mean, he gave up a couple doubles, guys in scoring position. But to be honest, no real threat, able to get out of it. Just making the right pitch at the right time. So we're going to go to the top of the six. With one out, Rich Coggins gets a double to right. And so now you're facing Tommy Davis and Earl Williams, the guys who so far have caused a lot of the damage for the Orioles, right? They've been the ones coming through with the big hits. But it gets Tommy Davis to pop out to third base, and then with a little, little help from his third baseman, Catfish is able to put his team just that much closer to going back to the World Series. Bando uh, marching over from third base, not directly towards Hunter. He's about a good 30 feet away, but just barking something at the catfish. Now, most pitchers know what they're supposed to throw batters, but fellows like Bando, kind of the leader in the open infield, will just remind them every once in a while to make sure that their, their concentration stays strong. Coggins off second, 2-2 two, two to Williams, and here it is off the stretch. Ball three. That was just off the outside corner. Williams looked like he was going to go after the pitch, chase the pitch, and then decided no. In the same situation back in the fourth inning. Hunter was 3-2 with Williams then. Walked him. Let's find out what happens here in the sixth inning, 3-2. and Coggins leading. Hunter throwing. Ground ball towards the hole. Campanaris is there. Throws to first. Just a tremendous, tremendous performance from Catfish Hunter. Known as one of the best big game pitchers. Hall of Fame. He was that guy who was a legend in his time. Now, some of it, like I mentioned before, with Charlie Finley, kind of manufactured. Um, Of course, you know, his Catfish Hunter's contract situation is part of the reason we actually got free agency and and the players suing, you know, Charlie fin, Finley not paying him his in his contract with his earned deferred compensation this is, re, is part of the reason that Catfish was able to be declared a free agent and go on to be with the Yankees and win more World Series, be part of a dy- be part of kind of two dynasties. Um, that's part of the reason that he's a legend in this game and just a and, and it's performances like this with the season on the line when you when you need that big moment that big game catfish was able to deliver now not always i mean sometimes he had he had starts when he was with the yankees where he had blowups and it's sort of the modern baseball look at him when you look at wins above replacement or fielding independent pitching he he seems like a guy who really benefited from pitching in a in a very large ballpark and by the way yankee stadium the old yankee stadium was a big ballpark that's that's something that a lot of people don't really factor in it was still short down the lines but like 
you know, he was a guy who had great defenders behind him um, and played on great teams. And, and so he, it's one of those sort of, you look at, oh, well, the modern stats don't love him. But you look at Catfish Hunter and you know he was a Hall of Famer. It's one of those things of where you can look past the advanced stats and know that, yeah, this guy was, he was, he was special. He was truly tremendous. I mean, I would say Vita Blue was more talented. Um, you know, Vita Blue had the ace-like stuff, and Hunter had that, you know, had that mound presence um, that guys like me loved to, you know, rave about. And so we get to the ninth inning again, sort of another another double there's quite a few doubles in this game and catfish is not not the cleanest game not the most dominant game but again he's just not rattled by this he's not rattled by it you know and after there's there's actually a little bit of a delay before the final play in the final inning like fans are ready to jump onto the field it was this weird thing back in the 60s and 70s with the fans storming the field I just, I just don't get it. Like why, why you look at all these big moments and and the fans were just ready to rush the field in a frenzy. Just why were we doing that? I I don't understand that. And and so there was actually a bit of a delay, like Bill Haller, the big umpire who, if you've ever seen, there's this great video. I think I mentioned it before of Bill Haller and Earl Weaver getting into it kind of two Titans of their respective crafts uh, and certainly uh, have a way with words, both of them. Um, but kind of looking there almost like threatening, like, Hey, if people are coming onto the field, you're going to have to forfeit this game, the A's. And they're like, what the heck are you talking about? We're kicking, we're kicking the Orioles butt here. What are you going to say? Taking us away because our fans. And, and so the fans settle down. We get ready for the final play. Bobby Grish at the plate, Hunter on the mound. And take a listen. The A's ready to go back to back. Go to the World Series yet again. Finish off a tremendous series with a really tough opponent. And kind of to tell the Orioles, hey, right now, the American League is ours. It's ours. Take a listen. Hunter comes forward, two and two. Ground ball towards short. Tampa has takes it out. Throws to first. The game is over. Oakland has won the 1973 American League Championship. Final score, Oakland three, Baltimore nothing. We'll be back to recap it right after this message. Yes, the Oakland A's just won the American League uh, Championship for the second straight year. And will now uh, go on to take on the New York Mets in the World Series. And that series will start here on Saturday afternoon. But just as much, the Oakland A's got a magnificent pitching performance on the shutout job accomplished by Catfish Hunter. Final score, and here are the totals. Three runs, seven hits, no errors for the A's. No runs, five hits, one error for the Orioles. Hunter goes the route. He won two of the three games for the A's. 
Alexander is the loser. Alexander did not get by the fourth inning when Jim Palmer relieved, and Palmer finished up the game. Of course, Bert Campanaris there, making the final play to send the A's back to the World Series. A masterclass, a gem, whatever, whatever you want to say. Talking about catfish there. We unfortunately lost catfish sort of at a young age uh, in 1999. And in fact, I, I hadn't known this. He was diagnosed with ALS, so otherwise kind of more known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, you know, he, he was a guy after his playing career. He went home to North Carolina, back to the town where he grew up. He loved to fish and hunt. And so he, you know, died back in his hometown, you know, was, was diagnosed in 1998 and kind of lived a secluded life at the end. Um, but man, when he was at his best on the mound, he was able to do special things. He was really one of those special players, part of that sort of that legend of the A's. When you think about him, when you think about Vita Blue, Reggie, Sal Bando, Burt. And Catfish is one of those guys you think. And then, of course, you know, going on to be part of those World Series teams with the Yankees, he was just, he was one of those guys that was a legend in his own time. And he goes on to have, we're going to cover a great World Series as well. And I'm really excited to cover this 73 World Series. Uh, it's going to be, oh man, it's so great. And and there's so many things to cover. I, I think what I'm thinking about the future of this show, I thought about covering different decades initially, like trying to hit on different things. But I think what I find, what I really love, I do love this set, the seventies baseball. So, you know, if we're going back a little bit earlier to the sixties and kind of into the early eighties, I mean, that, of course, I was not alive, and I think maybe perhaps it's because it was my dad's favorite era, right? And and he loves to talk about it, and I, and I think he loves that I'm enthralled by this era of baseball. But I just love it, the, the pitching, the stars, and then also just a role players. A guy like Vic Davileo coming through with a huge hit. You know, a, a guy like Gene Tennis, an underrated star being huge, and, and of course, winning players like Sal Bando, Burt Campanaris. Now, I'll leave the note on the Orioles, you know, before we move on to the World Series. Um, the Orioles, they would actually go, they would have a rematch with the A's in 1974, and the A's would get the best of them again. And then it would take a few years, the Orioles were still very good, but they changed things around. In fact, actually, they got Reggie Jackson, interestingly enough. But they moved some pieces around. They kind of remade the team in many ways. They, of course, had Eddie Murray come up in the late 70s. And they would go back to a World Series in 79. You know, be able to kind of cap off the end of the decade. You know, and if, you know the they ended up between 69 and 79. They went to four World Series. They won a bunch of division titles. But they were only able to win one of those World Series, unfortunately. But if you, you take a wider view, going to 66 and extending to 83, of course, they pick up two more World Series. They really had such a great run. 
And a lot of that's led by having a great manager, having a great front office, having great stars and great pitching. Jim Palmer, of course, a centerpiece through a through line of all of that. Man, I love I love covering 70s baseball. Like I said, it's my favorite era. Cuz I love to go back and watch it. Some of it's the legend, the legendary players and then also the underrated guys. You know, a guy like Earl Williams, Tommy Davis, um Belanger, Gritch, Blair. You know, it's not always the Hall of Famers. I, I I love to talk about the Hall of Famers, but just as important to me are those unsung heroes, are those those guys who star in their roles and come up with great clutch performances. We're going to have plenty more to cover in regards to that when we cover the 1973 World Series between the A's and the Mets. going to be a great Great series. I cannot wait to cover it. Until then, catch you next time on Fall Classic Rewind.